Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Relove Podcast. This is Pastor Rico. Our hope is that today's message adds life and power to your journey as you grow. Thanks for joining us. God, we just want to pause and thank you, Father. Father, we are, we are grateful for what you've done in our lives to bring us here to this point, Father. We are grateful for uh, the valleys and the peaks of, of this week, Father. We are grateful for uh, the opportunity today to be together one with another, God. Uh, and as we spend time together opening your word, Father, and worshiping God, I pray in a special way that you will in fact visit the hearts and the minds of each person present here today, each person that's online, each person physically gathered here, God, uh, remove the barriers, remove the distractions, remove the noise from our minds, our hearts, God, that our souls can be penetrated by you, God. Thank you, Father, once more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Relove Church, how are we? Amen. Relove Church, how are we? Listen, I am, I am, I am excited for uh, this month. I'm excited for the month of June. We ended May strong. Uh, I was personally blessed by our last sermon series, which was the I'm Fine series. I was blessed by the opportunity to learn by the guest uh, preachers that we had. Um, and I'm excited, though, for what God has called us to focus our time and attention toward in the month of June. In the month of June, we are starting a new sermon series called Win the Day. Win the Day. And I just want to take a quick minute. If you guys have not picked one of these cards up in the front, I'm going to ask you to do that when you leave, okay? All this card is, is on the back, it's going to show you who we have lined up for this five-part sermon series, who will be preaching, and then, of course, events for the month of June, okay? So we want to make sure that you guys stay connected. We're excited about what God has laid on the creative team and the pastoral staff's heart in terms of what we're going to be bringing to you in our teaching series this month. Uh, if you have not picked up one of these, please do so so you can be informed. Win the day. Win the day. Let's start quickly just in our opening scripture. I'm going to jump right in, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. And this is the, the scripture that is going to jumpstart our series. This is the thematic scripture for the Win the Day series. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 9 through 11. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to jump in. It says, Our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Someone say daily bread. Daily bread. A lot of things get passed down to us from our parents and from our parents' parents. A lot of things get, get passed down. Some of us got our good looks from our parents. Some of us didn't. <laughs> Some of us got our, our great genes from our parents. Some of us didn't. A, a, a lot of things get passed down. Uh, sometimes it's a bad temper. Sometimes it's a, uh, you know, it's a funny quirk or a, or a certain shape of a nose or a certain face structure. A lot of things get passed down to us from our parents. Stories, traditions, belongings, genetic traits. Uh, but when we talk about generational cycles, and that's what this sermon series is focusing on, we are going to be reclaiming your future from a broken past. We're talking about generational cycles. When we talk about generational cycles, we're talking about spiritual DNA. The unseen ingredients uh, that are woven into a person's personal proclivities. These are the, 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 the parts of their, of their spiritual reality that they did not necessarily choose. Stay with me. 
Stay with me. Spiritual scars is what I'm talking about. Generational cycles can come in the form of spiritual scars that are passed on to us from our descendants. Having to do with what we were exposed to in our childhood, what our, what our, what our families and our parents were exposed to in their childhood. Let me give you some examples. I'm talking about addictions. I'm talking about mental or physical illnesses. I'm talking about poverty, temperament, bad habits. We're talking about pornography, gambling. We're talking about racism, drug abuse, teen pregnancy, anger, alcoholism, divorce, infidelity. These are generational cycles. Notice I am being intentional to speak on generational cycles and not generational curses. Many of us in the Christian world have heard of generational curses. That's not what we're talking about today. We're going to be dismantling that false belief. We're talking today about generational cycles. Today we're going to answer three questions. It's very simple. The three questions are going to come up here on the screen. What is a generational cycle? How do they form and how do we break them? Those are the three things we're going to achieve today. But before I continue, uh, let me set the stage for the context for the next five weeks. So we're talking about win the day. What does that mean? Win the day, reclaiming your future from a broken past. Win the day is an idiom that's often, uh, it's used to, it's, it's, it means gaining complete and total success over something. It's used often in the sports world where we are wanting our athletes to focus on today's game, not next week's game. We want our athletes to focus on, on, on today's practice, not tomorrow's. Win the day. If you win today, you can win the series. If you win today, you can win the championship. If you get on base, you can make the home run, okay? So I want you to think win the day because a lot of times, when we're talking about generational cycles, we feel helpless. It's easy to become feeling, it's easy to become overwhelmed with the feelings of responsibility that me, me, God, I got to break this curse. I have to break this consequence. I have to break this cycle. Why does that fall on my shoulders? I don't want us throughout the next five weeks to focus about what we need to do to break a generational cycle. I want us to focus on what we need to do to win today. What we need to do to win today as a parent, as a mother, a father, as a spouse, as a son, a daughter, what we need to do today to make the impact everlasting on our family. And I'm excited to bring this word to you, family, because, because the, the, the word of God is explicit. And there's so much richness in the word of God that empowers us in our belief and in our actions toward breaking generational cycles. Win the day. For the context of this series, we are going to explore the ways that our victories today give us power to conquer generational consequences. We're going to deconstruct the misconceptions around generational cycles and patterns of sin and reveal what the Bible actually teaches about generational influence. We're going to take back tomorrow from yesterday, reclaiming your future from a broken past. Listen, Albert Einstein he said, learn from yesterday, live for today, hope for tomorrow. Your family's war with sin is one with your walk in grace today. Your family's war with sin tomorrow is one in your walk with grace today. Mm, wow. 
I want to start with you understanding the simple fact that God is a generational God. The God that created all of humanity is a generational God. God thinks generationally. He created humanity generationally. He moves through the generations. There are such things as generational blessings. If you were to ask yourself, hey, what does my family's generational blessing look like? What would, that, what would you tell yourself? What is your family's calling? If we can acknowledge that each of us individually have a personal mission and a personal calling over our life by God, then we should be able to recognize that our families also have a familial calling over God. What is your family's calling by God? If we can recognize that we as independent agents were given a a very specific purpose on this earth then we're going to recognize that as those independent agents, a family is nothing but a collection of those independent agents who are unified by a purpose. So we're talking about generational cycles. Psalms 145 verse 4 says that one generation commends your works to another. They tell your mighty acts. God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. There's a reason he calls himself from the sons to the sons to the the generations to the generations. He's claiming those generations. He's working through those generations, okay? He's providing for those generations. God works generationally because he's a God who designed us to generate. Mm. Be fruitful and multiply means generate. The spiritual life you live in part is deposited into the spiritual DNA of your children. That's a big claim, Pastor Rico. I know it is. It's not my claim. This is just what the Bible says. This is just what I want y'all to understand about the word of God. So the first, the, 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 the first question is, what is a generational cycle? And this is what I just explained. Our second question is simply, how do generational cycles form? Now we're going to look in the Word of God, and this is one of, the most, one of the most clearly seen points in Scripture where we recognize how generational cycles are consequential uh, between different families. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, uh, verse 5, starting with verse 5. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Let's get verse 6. Let's get verse 6. On verse 6, what we see next is that, what we see is that, Oh, that was, that was all of them. That was, that was five and six. So, so I want you all to understand that right here in Exodus, God is demonstrating. Now, this, if you're not familiar, in Exodus chapter 20 is where Moses was given the Ten Commandments, okay? So this is actually the second commandment where he's saying, build no other gods, right? Worship me only. And so God is, 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 is introducing himself to the Israelites and to the Hebrew people as a person, as a God who works generationally. Now, I want to focus on three particular words in that scripture in Exodus chapter 20. In in that scripture, we see three words that I want to help us understand the process by which generational cycles are formed, okay? If we can get that scripture right back up here on the screen, that'll be helpful. The first word is iniquity, okay? Iniquity. This is the first word I want us to focus on. Then we're going to look at visiting, 
And then we're going to look at hate. I want you guys to, 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 to follow me in this. And I know I'm being a little teachy today. I'm going to teach today and preach next week, okay? So follow me because we are, we, are, we, are, we are not renewed only by our feelings. We're renewed by our mind, right? So we really want to look at, at the truth that the Scripture teaches us about generational cycles. So iniquity. I want us to understand first this word iniquity is not a word that we use often anymore. But when you look at the original Hebrew language, the word actually refers to a specific stronghold or a bent or an angle toward a certain proclivity. So when we're talking about iniquity, we're we're, we're literally, it literally means to be bent or deformed. It's not just sin, transgression of the law. Iniquity in this context, in the original language, actually means bent or deformed. Now, why is that important? That's important because the deformation is the result of repeated and willful disobedience toward God. I think a lot of us take on this ideology that we're just going to be victims of what our parents did before us. No, but this is, this is something that we do have in us naturally a proclivity or a propensity to go in a certain direction. We may be more easily tempted by certain temptations than others in, in, in myself, in my family, opposed to another family. You follow? So, so we're talking about iniquity. That is the first way, the first step of forming the generational cycle. The second word is, is visiting. When we look at the word visiting in scripture, visiting actually refers to the natural process of cause and effect. The natural process of cause and effect, right? So a, a, a parent's poor financial decisions can result in poverty for a child. Very simple. This is just cause and effect. There's nothing real, real spiritual about that word visit. It just means that, hey, what you do in one, what you do in one season of life is going to affect you and those around you in another season of life. This is visiting. These are the disadvantages that we inherit as a result of our parents' poor choices. And the next word is hate. Hate. For, for, for our regular casual using of the word hate, our context is typically a strong dislike. That is not what the word of God is saying here. It's not saying a strong dislike. The word of God in the Hebrew language for hate is actually to reject, turn away, or turn against. So we're talking about movement, right? We're talking about movement, reject, turn away, or turn against. So if you were to ask me how generational cycles are formed, I would tell you that they are formed first by personal iniquity, right? Your personal uh, proclivities, your natural tendencies, plus visiting our families, right? What our families done done, what our families done did. Okay, and then we're talking about remains with family who reject God, and this is very important. So you do have some natural tendencies as a person. You do have some influence from your families and those who come before you, but the deal breaker with this is that it remains with the family member who rejects God. So, so, so I'm setting this up so that we can recognize that, yeah, I may have some, you know, my, I may have some alcoholic tendencies or I may have some depression tendencies. I watched my mother struggle with money my whole life and I'm doing the same thing. I, I, I'm seeing my, I'm saying the same things to my kids that my mom and dad said to me, 
right? So you may be recognizing some of the repetitions of your experiences in your adult life experience now, but the deal breaker with this is that those things remain with the family member who rejects God. I'm, I'm starting to get excited a little bit. I'm starting to get excited about this because this has to do with me. This has to do with you. This has to do with your mama. This has to do with everyone that you know, because the truth of the matter is none of us are free from a generational cycle. Not one of us are free from a generational cycle. It may manifest itself differently. My sin may look a little bit different. My addiction may be to a different substance, but I still have that in me. And some of us may go through seasons in our life and cycles in our life where we, where we have seasons where we struggle with this thing and then we claim victory over it, but somehow we just keep getting pulled back to it. I don't know what yours is, but you got one. And it may not be no drug. It may not be sex. It may not be, hey, it may be just a nasty attitude. You may really just not be a kind person. You think that's not generational? You think you didn't learn that somewhere? You didn't think the enemy deposited that in you somewhere somehow? That the impact you make on the people around you is having to do with your attitude? None of us are free from a generational cycle yet. Yet. If this Bible language is too spiritual for you, let's look at this phenomenon through the lens of science. Y'all start yawning when I talk about science. I did it a couple weeks ago. Y'all looked at me all glassy-eyed. We ain't going to do that today. We're going to wake up today. This is what we're going to do because I want you to understand that it's not just something to feel here. There's something to know. I also want you to understand that the Word of God is not just this mystic book. It's not just a, a bunch of words that, that he had his prophets and his authors put together. This is actually, there is no truth in this book that is not supported by science in the world we experience. In fact, the Bible is God's truth, and science is just what humanity has discovered about his truth. So let's look at the science about this, right? So our science, if we, if we considered generational trauma is what we call it in the psychological world. In, in, in the clinical social work world, we talk about generational or intergenerational trauma. So I'm coming down your row. Listen, in 1966, Canadian psychiatrist Vivian Rakoff began a study to examine the high, to examine the high rates of trauma-induced conditions like anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic st stress that have been observed in the children of Holocaust survivors. So not the people who experienced the Holocaust. No, no, no. This, this research, the research subjects were the children of those who experienced trauma in the Holocaust. Trauma, very simply stated, is an event that deeply distresses or disturbs the person who experiences it. And it creates long-lasting impacts on your perception of yourself, other people, and the world around you. And I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. If you have not or you are not currently following the We Talk in Spaces podcast that Relove hosts, I'm going to encourage you to do that. On Monday, we are releasing a new episode. I had the opportunity to have a conversation uh, with, with Dr. S Dr. Ingrid Slickers from Andrews University. She is the director of the International Center for Trauma care and education, and we talk just trauma. What is trauma? How does it manifest itself in your life? She, she, she is well studied. She's a professor at the university in the social work department. And, and we want to bring you, again, not just spiritual information, but we want to bring you supplemental information. And so if you have not 
followed that podcast, I'm going to encourage you to do so, to go deeper into trauma. Because trauma, at the end of the day, this is what I learned from her. She said that trauma, the Greek word that we get trauma from, means wound. It's hurt. It's wound. And we could think of wound as something physical, but a wound can be emotional. A wound can be mental or psychological. A, a, a wound can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. When we first be, began understanding what trauma is, it was, it was with, with, with veterans from the war. We didn't understand what, what, what their disconnect from reality was. We didn't understand the symptoms that they were demonstrating. We didn't see any physical wound, but there was an emotional turmoil. There was a distress taking place. And this was 50 years ago, 55 years ago. Now we are in a place where we understand a lot more about how trauma works in your brain and ways that we can recover from trauma. A trauma that is passed from a trauma survivor to their descendants. People experiencing intergenerational trauma may experience symptoms, reactions, patterns, and emotional and psychological effects from the trauma experienced by their parents. So what your parents experienced emotionally can actually have an effect on your DNA. In 1988, there was further research that was done by Irid Felsen. It named the phenomenon survivor syndrome. Survivor syndrome. The symptoms shown in this unique population included unresolved mourning, agitation, insomnia, and nightmares. Those were the four primary sources of, 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 of trauma responses that were recognized in this research. Generational trauma is grappling with trauma one has never personally experienced. The Bible talks about generations visiting the iniquities upon the third and fourth generation. Science is telling us that the same thing can take place. Have you ever heard of something called trauma in utero? Which literally means that while a mother is still pregnant, that her emotional distress is going to help form the DNA of the child? Did you realize this? Prenatal trauma is part of the reason that many of us have the issues that we have today. It's not even with anything we experienced. You think someone has to show up in a wheelchair to show that they have a birth defect? No, no, no. You, from the beginning, before you had the opportunity to take your first breath, your mother may have experienced something emotionally, physically. We know the physical part. We know that if a mother falls down the stairs while she's pregnant, we're going to expect there to be a repercussion physically for that baby. But we don't think about the mental and emotional distress that's now forming that child. But I got some good news for you. Is that the word of the Lord says that before I knew you, before I knit you together in your mother's womb, before you took your first breath, you were mine. I claimed you. I called you. And we here at Real Love are celebrating you despite what you may have gone through. Because even though you may have been born into a generational cycle, even though you did not get to choose what your mother experienced while she was pregnant with you, there is hope for you today. There is healing. We're going to talk about reversing the curse. We want to reverse the curse, not just, not just stop it moving forward. No, the word promises reversal. Stick with me for a couple more minutes. The third question I said we were going to answer today is, how do we break generational cycles? How do we break generational cycles? Listen, we claim, blame, name, and tame. Claim, blame, name, and tame. We have to claim the promises. You have to start by claiming promises. Let me pause. I am not diminishing or dismissing your need for some help. 
I'm talking about therapy. I'm talking about psychology. I'm talking about potentially medication. I'm talking about rehab. All those things plus Jesus, okay? So back to our regularly scheduled program. Claim the promises. The first thing we need to do is recognize the power in the promises over our life. See, a lot of people stop at Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. But verse 6 is where the power of the promise actually is. If we look at verse 6, Exodus 20, verse 6 says, But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Right? So verse 5 says, You shall not... Verse 5 says, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. That's the problem. But in the next verse, verse 6, there's the promise. The promise is that I'm, he says, but I'm showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. We have to keep reading the scripture. The problem is in verse 5, and the promise is in verse 6. Listen, the spiritual liberty in your life, the spiritual liberty in life is accessed in two things, according to verse 5. According to verse 6, it's accessed in love and obedience. It's accessed in love for God and in obedience. We have to claim these promises. The next thing we need to do is stop the blame. We got to stop the blame. Amen. Stop blaming our parents. Stop blaming our, 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 our family. Stop blaming our aunts, our uncles, our grandparents. Stop blaming the city we were born in. Stop blaming the, the, the community and the culture. Stop blaming the systems. <laughs> we got to stop blaming the, 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 the oppression. They're real. They're all very real, and they have a place for you in your movement as you navigate through your healing process, but we got to stop giving them so much power is all I'm saying. We need to stop the blame game. Ezekiel chapter 18. I want to spend a little bit of time in this scripture. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. There's something very, very interesting in the way, the way the word of God illustrates this. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 2 says, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? This is God speaking to the prophet, and this is what the prophet Ezekiel is telling the Israelites, Okay. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? Can you hear, can you hear God's voice? Can you imagine God? What do you people mean? I mean, what do you mean, you people? What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? Here's the proverb. The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So what's happening is that the people of Israel... Have, 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 have adopted this, this, this principle, this ideology, and they use this parable often, right? And God is putting them in check saying, why are you using this? Verse 3 says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. Mm. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? The, 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 the quote is, the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This proverb was used uh, by the Jewish people in Ezekiel's day, and we see it also occurring in Jeremiah chapter 31. We see it in Lamentations 5, verse 7. This, the, the, the idea was that the present generation is reaping the harvest or the bad harvest of their parents. The present generation was being unjustly punished for what their parents did. This is their claim. The people who are saying this are saying, why am I being punished for the sins of my parents? 
One would think that if the parents have eaten sour grapes, then that, that sour taste would be in the mouth of the parents. But this proverb is saying, no, that sour taste is in the mouth of the children of those parents. This proverb for the Israelites was an attempt to escape the responsibility of sin and protest punishment. He says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb. Now check out verse 4. Check out verse 4. It says, for everyone belongs to me. The parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. The one who sins is the one who, the one who chewed the grapes is the one who will have the sour taste in his mouth. God set these people straight. And he's setting you straight today. We cannot keep blaming our parents. God, in this scripture, is saying, no, I claim you. You are mine. Your mother is mine and your father is mine, but you are mine. The taste in their mouth is not the taste in your mouth. The death you will die is the death you deserve based upon your decisions. It's not the death that they have put upon you. We're talking about our generational cycles. God began his answer to the false proverb by declaring a very, very important principle. All souls belong to God. You are borrowed to your parents. Your children are borrowed to you. All souls belong to God. The fathers of the souls, the souls of the fathers as well as the souls of the children. The idea of God's lordship over humanity was very an ancient concept in Hebrew culture. It wasn't foreign. Since the beginning, God has always claimed you. He's claimed your mother. He's claimed your father. He's claimed your lineage. You belong to God. Your parents may have lived in the sin. They may have demonstrated the sin. They may have amplified the sin. They may have passed the sin along to you, but it's still their sin. It's still their sin. It's only yours if you adopt it. Wow. And you can only adopt it by decision. Wow. That's good. Yeah. This idea is communicated again very explicitly in verse 20 of the same chapter. Look at this one. Verse 20 says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. We got to break these chains. We have to break these chains. It shows up again in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to put that one up there. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says, Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sins. Stop the blame. Stop the blame. Stop the blame. The first thing we need to do is claim the promises. The second thing we need to do is stop the blame. The third and last thing we need to do is name it to tame it. Name it to tame it. Name it to tame it. This step is all about accountability. This is all about accountability. So, so many families die by what they refuse to acknowledge. Listen to me. So many families die by what they refuse to acknowledge. We could preach for days just on generational secrets. The enemy thrives in what's unspoken because the enemy knows the word of God. He knows that there's life and death in the power of the tongue. So in your solitude and in your silence, he has victory. Yeah. 
In your quietness and in your, your, your disacknowledgement, he has power. And you're shutting up of the mouth because you're embarrassed to talk about the situation because your mom and dad are sitting right there because you experience the same thing because you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and you're, you see your parents. In that same way, the enemy is given power because we refuse to acknowledge it. You have to name it to tame it. You have to give it language for it to have power. And when I say it, I'm referring to, to your victory over it. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's going to have power if you talk about it, that the sin is going to have power. No, I'm saying you have the power to conquer the sin beginning with the language that you empower your victory with. This step is all about accountability. Accountability is admitting. Accountability is confessing. James chapter 5, 16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is not a singular journey. This is not a one-on-one path. There is power in what you profess. Proverbs 18, 21 says that there's life and death in the power of the tongue. Remember, you are more inclined to sin in, the, in, in certain areas of your life and in certain areas due to what you've been exposed to. So you need to give those areas that much more language. You may not struggle that much with certain addictions, but you, may, but you may struggle with other addictions. You need to give those things language. You need to say those things. You need to confess those things. That may look like coming to a brother or sister in life group. That may look like coming to someone at church, pulling them aside and be like, hey, I, gotta, I, I need to confess. I need to tell you something. I need you to pray with me and pray for me because I'm struggling with this certain thing. I don't know who to talk to. And I don't talk to anybody about it. I can't talk to my family because my family struggles with all the same stuff too. That's what that looks like. You need, there is power in what you profess. So if I were to sum up how we break generational cycles, it's these three things. We claim the promise, we stop the blame, and you have to name to tame. Name to tame. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 3 as we bring this word to a close this morning. There's a truth in what we're saying here, and there's a very important distinction to be made, and I preface this at the beginning of our time together this morning. A Christian can and will be affected by generational consequences, by generational cycles, yes, but a Christian cannot be under a generational curse. Hear me. As a Christian, you will experience the consequences of generational cycles, but you cannot be under a generational curse. And let me show you from Scripture why that's the case, and it's a very important case. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14, I'm going to read the whole thing. Listen, it says, For all who rely on the words of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Yes, yes. So verse 12 now says, verse 12 says, verse 12 says, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? What is the law? It's the Ten Commandments. By becoming a curse for us, it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. 
Verse 14 says, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come from the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Listen, Paul is speaking some very, very powerful, chain-breaking words here. I want want to talk about this just for a moment as we close. There are some powerful, chain-breaking truths being professed here. Paul says that the rules of God cannot deliver you from your generational cycles. The rules of God, it's the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the law. He's saying the law is powerless to save you. The Ten Commandments cannot save you. The Ten Commandments cannot break your generational cycles. So I don't care how great you're doing at keeping all ten of the commandments. That does not save you. Your cycles, your perceived curses will still have stronghold in the midst of those generational cycles. In the midst of you keeping those ten commandments. I want you to understand how, what, what, what we're doing wrong as Christians. And thinking that we're coming to church, we're showing up, we have no other gods, we're faithful to our wife. These ten commandments, we, 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 we keep the Sabbath day, right? All these things that we do are not going to break those generational cycles. What Paul is saying here is that the law has a specific purpose. The law is still good, but the law is good to reveal. The law is not good to save. The law is good to show. The law is not good to change. We're using the law incorrectly and expecting our cycles and our sins to be overpowered, but we're using the law incorrectly. If you misunderstand the purpose of the law, you will experience powerlessness in the law. Because the purpose of the law is to expose your sin, not to deliver your sin. The deliverance happened on the cross. The law only shows you your sin. So the law is still good. Paula, will you hand me that mirror standing right there? Yeah, right there. Just pull it on out. Listen, the, 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 the law is like this. The law is like this mirror. This mirror shows you you. This mirror shows you your face. It shows you your body. It shows you what you look like. Some of us don't like what we look like. Some of us do, a little too much. When you woke up this morning, I bet, let me me do it this way. When you woke up this morning, raise your hand if you did not look in the mirror. Y'all better not lie either. You did not. We have one. Paula's out here, look at her, strung her stuff, looking all good without a mirror, look at her. Take a picture of her, man, get a picture of her today. That's one person, though, out of all of us. We all woke up this morning and looked in the mirror. What did we do? What did you see when you looked in the mirror this morning? Don't even lie. A mess. He said a mess. He saw a mess. There's a miracle in that mess. There's a miracle in that mess. Listen, you saw your hair all crazy looking. You saw the, 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 left, the dribble, left, you know, you know, just a little, you know. You saw the, 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 yeah, you saw the, the sleep in your eyes, the, the little eye sands. You, look, you looked in the mirror to know what you had to do to make yourself presentable to come to church today. That's what you did. You looked in the mirror, and you looked at it, and you said, man, I look hit. <laughs> so I'm going to comb my hair. I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to put my makeup on. I'm going to put my stuff right. That's, that's what you used the mirror for. That's what the law does. That's it, though. You did not then take that mirror off the wall and try to comb your hair with it. I want you guys to see this because it's stupid. 
And I want you guys to think about this when you look in the mirror every week. Imagine me combing my hair with this mirror. I brush my... This is what we do with the law. We misuse the law and expect the law to change you, the law to fix you, the law to clean you up. We expect our hair to be conditioned by the law, our teeth to become shiny by the law, but the law does not do that. The law only exposes you. What actually changes you then? What changes you? We're not done in the scripture. What changes you? If it's not this mirror, what is it that's changing you? The law only condemns you. It does not fix you. If committing myself to the law isn't what breaks my chains, then what does? Continue reading in verse 14. Let's look at verse 14. It says, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. We're Gentiles. Through Christ Jesus, said and done, that's been done 2,000 years ago, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit. You have the mirror that shows you your need for the Spirit, but then your actual need is met by the Spirit. And there's a promise here. There's a promise here. So what am I saying? We've been talking all year, family, about spaces. We've been saying that where two or more are gathered, the Spirit of the Lord is with them as well in Matthew 18, 20. We've been meeting together in small groups and life groups around each other's tables. We've been sitting on each other's pouches. Why? Because two or more are gathered there. The Spirit of the Lord is there. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and there is freedom indeed. Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Your power over your generational consequences exists in your possession of the spirits. Now let me tell you something. You're here today, you got it. The spirit is in you, it's leaving with you, the spirit came with you because you accepted it. That's simple. It's acceptance. And I know that if you're here, you accepted it because you probably wouldn't be here. The spirit lives and dwells and exists within you. Listen family, your, your, your job as a Christian is not to fight sin. Your job is not to fight the addiction. Your job is not to to withhold the anger. Your job is not to figure stuff out. That is not your job. Your job is to avoid living a life absent of Christ. Because when you live a life absent of Christ, you wake up and you are not in devotion. Your thoughts and prayers are not toward God. You are not in fellowship with his people. You are absent of Christ. You can surely have a personal relationship with God, but personal does not mean private. It does not mean secluded. It does not mean solitudinal. Run to the life group. Run to the church family. Call the people in your lowest, darkest point. When you're suffering and your family can't help you because they're part of the reason you have the iniquity, go to your spiritual brothers and sisters. This is where the power of the Lord is. This is where the freedom is. This is how the Spirit is attained, and it's right here in the promise in Galatians. There is hope for you and your children and their children and their children and their children in the power of the Spirit. The enemy is not Satan. The enemy is your life absent of Christ. The enemy is in your daily decisions. It's in your daily bread. This is why we're saying win the day. Win the day, family. I don't want you to leave here today and say, I'm going to break my family's generational consequences. No, I'm going to want you to leave here to say, no, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and win the day. 
I'm going to wake up tomorrow one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, step by step. Paul calls it glory to glory. I just want you to win the day because the power for your family in the future exists in your win today. Your family's war with sin tomorrow is one with your grace, with your walk in grace today. Father, we just want to thank you, God, for the deliverance of your word, Father, for the power of your promise. I want to thank you for the intensity of your love for us as demonstrated by those around us in our fellowship. Here at Relove Church, God, we don't seek just to live day by day by day by day with no change, God. Draw us close to you, Father. Bring us into your presence, God. That day by day, our victory can be in our presence with you. And in that, we can break the cycles, break the consequences that have hurt us. We can say no to Satan when it comes to our children. Let each person's repentance be personal to you, God. For whatever their issue is, whatever their generational cycle is, God. Father, we thank you for being a God who hears, answers prayer, and has the potency to respond and the specificity to respond in just the way we need, God. In Jesus' name, amen.